And if you will, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3 in your Bibles. Before I give you some announcements, let me remind you of the other adult classes we have going on. We have the Crossroads class, which is up through about age 25, uh, 19 to 25. And they're meeting out that door and across the hall in adult classroom 2. But also today and for the next three Sundays, uh, our friends group, that's the 60 and over group, they're meeting in adult 1 across that hallway. And Ron Biggs is leading that class. So if you fit in that category and you... You want to go to that class? That's uh, all good. If you stand up now and leave, my feelings will not be hurt. That's okay. Um, you have to be 60, though, so they will card you at the door. All right. So if you're somebody that's a refugee from my class, then I will be offended if you, if you actually don't fit in the friends group. Uh, and then the rest of you are, are stuck in here. But those are the three adult classes we have. Let me give you some announcements as quickly as I can. Now, today we're finishing up three days, Friday, Saturday, and today uh, at the Trenton Street Fair. Uh, summer festival, and uh, we've had a booth set up there, and there have been just hundreds of people that have come by over these uh, two days now, and now uh, the third and final day. And we have some of our folks who made it a point to sign up to man the booth during this hour so that they could miss my class but still be serving at the same time. So, Miss Church Without Guilt, serving at the Trenton Summer Festival. Really, we're thankful for those folks doing that and for our outreach team and putting that uh, together. We had invitations uh, there for our Vacation Bible School, but also for our Open House, which is one week from this Saturday, two weeks from yesterday. July the 12th, 1 to 5, we are going to have an Open House for the community here uh, to introduce ourselves to them, but uh, show them uh, the building because this used to be... Taylor Elementary School, William Taylor Elementary School, and it has a, uh, a very sentimental spot in the hearts of Trenton residents, we have discovered. And uh, as a result, several of them have come by the building over the last several months, wanted a tour to see what we've done with it, and so we're offering that as part of the open house. There are going to be some bounce houses out in the front and some food to give it a bit of a festive atmosphere. But that's our main objective, to give those uh, tours and to get an opportunity to meet folks in the community and then to invite them uh, to the next day when we're going to have our worship service called Introducing Community Bible Church and then also invite them to the series that starts in this hour on July the 20th, which is called Where is God When It Hurts? And think about somebody that you can invite to that series. So three weeks from today, Where is God When It Hurts? And that's listed in our, our bulletin. Now, this coming Saturday, this Saturday at 10 a.m., we need anybody who can, who is physically able to walk the streets of this neighborhood to put door hangers out to invite folks to the following Saturday, open house. Any of you that can do that, meet here at 10 a.m. next Saturday. We'll give you a route of several blocks to do with that, and then you'll be, you'll be off. It should not take you more than two hours. If we got a horde of people here, then it would take less than two hours for us, which would be each. That would be great. But uh, it shouldn't take you more than two hours. So if you can help, that'll be this Saturday at uh, 10 a.m., all right? VBS is uh, August uh, 10 through 14, Sunday night through Thursday. That is, those are evenings. We have uh, a bunch of volunteers, thank you, that have already been given assignments for that. They're going to start actually, is it today, I think, the VBS people are practicing for the next seven Sundays after Sunday morning, they're going to practice for two hours their skits and all of that stuff. So that's all moving forward. But we need some supplies for that. And there is a display out in the foyer 
uh, with the information uh, that tells you what supplies we need. If you can help with that, that'd be great. All right, in this hour, for the last several weeks, and now moving forward for the next uh, two, counting today, three Sundays, until we have the Where is God When It Hurts series, uh, we have been looking at uh, how it is that God gradually eradicates the sin that we carry with us into our lives after coming to Christ. And I've made the case that each of us has characteristic ways that we manifest our struggle with sin. And those characteristic ways are uh, developed by two major things. One, uh, your personality. All of us are different in our personalities, and as a result, we all sin in different ways. But also, the second category that's developed the characteristic ways that we struggle with sin is what was modeled in front of us, our upbringing. And since all of us have different upbringings, then that too contributes to the variety of ways that we struggle with sin and manifest our our sin struggle. Today, and for the next two Sundays, I would like to talk about how it is that God goes about then eradicating that. It's one thing to make the point that we all struggle in different ways. It's another thing to look at what it is God does about it. And that's why I've asked you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 gives us one of the most significant ways that means that God uses in order to move us from where we are to where we need to go, to move us along in the process of what we call sanctification. Now, we call it sanctification because the word sanctify is related to the word saint, which is related to the word holy in the New Testament. And to sanctify means to be made holy. So the sanctification process is God gradually making us holy. And every Christian is to be involved in the sanctification process. God has saved us in order to make us like himself. And since none of us are there yet, it means that all of us need to be progressing in the sanctification process. So sanctification means to be made holy, and holy means to be set apart. So we are gradually, in this process, gradually set apart from sinfulness, fallenness, from the world, and to God and to righteousness. That's what sanctification is, and all of us are to be actively engaged in that. Now, how does God go about doing that? That's what I want to look at over the next few weeks. We're all to be involved in that, but what does God use and what does God do in order to make us holy, in order to sanctify us? And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you have this famous passage in verse 16 that gives us one of the key ways that God does that, and that is namely through his word. Verse 16, 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now that passage tells us a few things about scripture. It tells us scripture's purpose But it also tells us Scripture's uses in achieving that purpose. If you look at verse 16 again, teaching is not the purpose of Scripture. Teaching is one of the uses of Scripture, one of the things that Scripture is to be used for in accomplishing the purpose of Scripture. If you look at those two verses, what is the purpose? 
All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The purpose is actually in verse 17. So that, here's the purpose. And the purpose is that we be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So if anyone were to ask you, what is the purpose of the Bible? Why did God give us the Bible? I mean, that's it. For every good thing that's to be accomplished in the life of the believer, God has given us Scripture to accomplish that purpose. Now notice verse 17 says, for every good work, which is where we get the idea that Scripture is sufficient. We call it the sufficiency of Scripture. That for every good thing that God seeks to develop in the life of his people, the Scriptures cover those things. Because the Scriptures are given for the purpose of equipping us for how many good works? Every good work. The purpose is, is that we be equipped. But the means by which we are equipped is what is given in verse 16. It's these four things. All Scripture is God-breathed, that is. It has its source in God. It came from God. And is useful for these four things in order to accomplish the purpose of equipping us. And the four things are in verse 16. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. And you could read over those very quickly and think that that's a random list of things that Scripture is useful for, that Scripture does. And that perhaps those four items, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, could be put in different order. So maybe Paul could have said, all Scripture is God-breathed and is good for training and correcting and rebuking and teaching. But actually that's not the case. That the sequence here of those four items is actually a logical sequence that can't be reversed. You can't have the next one until you've had the prior one. And so notice what they are again. Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us about God. Scripture teaches us about ourselves. Scripture teaches us about others. It teaches us about God's world. It teaches us about what we are supposed to be. And as a result of that teaching from the Word of God, looking into Scripture as it were like a mirror, as James chapter 1 compares the Bible to, looking into a mirror. And James there in James 1 implores us to be doers of the Word and not hearers. Otherwise, we're like someone who looks at himself in the mirror, sees the changes that need to be made, but then goes away unchanged. And thereby, the purpose of Scripture is not accomplished if we do that. So Scripture holds itself up as a mirror to us, shows us what we are, but also shows us God's standard. And there's always a gap, isn't there? There's a gap between where I am and where I need to be. So Scripture first teaches me. And then as a result of that teaching, showing me God, showing me myself, revealing to me the gap between the two. The second thing then happens. Scripture rebukes. Having been taught who God is and what I'm supposed to be then, I am, I am rebuked. That is, I am, uh, I am, uh, I am uh, chided for not being what I ought to be. And Scripture 
tells us things like Hebrews 5.14. Hebrews 5.14 says, I'm quoting, By this time you ought to be teachers, it says. But instead, you are immature and you require milk rather than meat of the word, says the writer of Hebrews. Now notice that's a rebuke. This is where I should be, but this is where I am. And that failure on our part provides the rebuke of of Scripture. I'm taught who God is, who I am, the gap, and as a result, I'm rebuked. And if you put a period at the end of that, it would be a bad thing indeed, wouldn't it? All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching you about the gap and rebuking you because there is a gap, period. Good luck with that. But thankfully, God doesn't do that. He goes on to say the Scriptures are useful for teaching, and then as a result of that, rebuking, but then thirdly, correcting. Correcting. And you can't be corrected until you first recognize that you've fallen. So you're rebuked, you recognize you've fallen, and then to correct means to, uh, to raise what has previously fallen. That's literally what the word means. To raise what has previously fallen. So this building was, this half of the building was erected recently. And to correct is to raise, erect something that has previously fallen. And that's what the word correction then means. So the word of God is useful in order, in logical order for these things. It teaches us as a result of its teaching we are rebuked because of the gap between where we should be and where we are. But God doesn't leave us there. He gives us instruction about correcting, raising us up, though we have previously fallen. Now, it does that in throughout, but in passages like Ephesians 4 that we saw last week. Last week in Ephesians 4.29, the Bible says, Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only that which is for the building up of others, that it may benefit those who hear. Now that's correcting when we've fallen. We've used our tongues in a sinful way. Here's how God says to correct that. Let no unwholesome talk, but only talk that benefits others, builds others up. And it's in that very context in Ephesians 4, verses 22 and 24, that we're told to put off certain things and put on other kinds of attitudes and words and behavior. That's Scripture correcting us. Not just telling us what's wrong, telling us now how what is wrong needs to be replaced with what is right. And then you have the final of the list of four. Training in righteousness. The word training is a word that's sometimes translated in your New Testament, discipline. And that's why sometimes it'll be translated here, disciplined training in righteousness. God doesn't want us to simply fall, get back up, and then immediately fall again. Now, we do that. I do that. You do that. And when that happens, then we repair to Scripture and we do what Scripture says to be corrected. But as we move along in the sanctification process, what God wants is for us to develop, train for disciplined habits of righteousness so that I still fall, but that as I progress in sanctification, I fall less frequently with the same things. I still struggle with the same things. I've still got the same habits that uh, I've had 
But as I progress in sanctification, I'm developing disciplined habits of righteousness such that I now fall less frequently in that area than I used to. That's God's desire and that's God's design. And one of the main means that he uses in order to accomplish that is is Scripture itself. Now, notice I keep saying in this, one of the main means is, is Scripture. None of the means that God gives us for sanctification are apart from Scripture. But God works in our lives in order to illuminate Scripture, in order to bring Scripture to mind in our circumstances as part of the sanctification process as well. So I wanted to remind you that one of the chief tools that God uses is indeed his word in this sanctification process, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. But now I want us to today and for the next few weeks look at some of the varieties of ways that God works in our lives in order to sanctify us. None of those are apart from Scripture, but some of those are outside of Scripture, and they, as I say, illustrate and illuminate Scripture for us. Hopefully you'll see what I mean as we move forward. Now, why do I care about this? Why am I beating on this? Well, one, we're all to be involved in becoming more like Jesus every day. So all of us need to be involved in the sanctification process. So that's reason enough for me to care about it and for you to care about it. But another reason that I've brought it up at this time is because there's some teaching currently out there that says that the sanctification process is primarily, and in some cases only, found in one way. And that one way is in thinking about how it was that you first came to Christ and what it is that Christ has done for you. And in thinking about what it is that Christ has done for you, you will be automatically sanctified. Now you say, you're exaggerating that. There aren't people who really teach that. No, really, there are. Um, You'll see it in formulas like Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Anybody ever heard that? Now, there are things about that that are true. But the way it's being used for the sanctification process, it actually becomes quite untrue and quite unhelpful and even dangerous. Because people are encouraged to just think about what Jesus did for you. Think about what he did to accomplish your standing before God as a son or daughter of God, to adopt you into his family. As you think about that, that will have a sanctifying effect on you. Now, certainly that's a good thing to do, and certainly that happens, but it is most decidedly not the only means that God uses to sanctify us. Now, people who say that say things like this, sanctification essentially involves the activity of remembering, believing, and resting on justification. Now, let me stop there. We've used a a few big terms here. Sanctification, I explained what that is. It's the process of becoming holy, becoming like Christ. Now, justification, what is that? Justification is what happened when you first came to Jesus. The moment you placed your faith and trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches that you were justified before God. That is, the word justified means this, to be declared righteous. So 
at the moment you placed your faith and trust in Christ as your Savior, bowed before him as your Lord, God, the righteous judge, declared you righteous even though you're sinful and even though I'm sinful. And he did that on the basis of the perfect, righteous life of Jesus. That's what justification is. It's a blessed thing that I stand in him complete, that Jesus has accomplished everything that's necessary for my being a child of God and being adopted into his, into his family. So I am justified, declared right before God. And so this quote again says, sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus, essentially involves this, the activity of remembering, believing, and resting on justification, the truth that you've been declared righteous by God. Rehearsal of Jesus' substitutionary death is the key dynamic driving our sanctification. Or here's another. Self-salvation through our own efforts is the sin of sins. The attempt at self-justification through performance is the deepest, most persistent, and most significant problem hindering and necessitating sanctification. Now, do you see what's being said there? That justification is the thing that you continually have to remember. And the opposite of doing that is for you to actually put forth effort in doing good works. And that effort in in doing good works is called self-justification through performance. And it is called the sin of sins and the most significant problem hindering and necessitating sanctification. If you would stop working, if you would stop putting forth effort and keep remembering that you've been justified and accepted by God, then things would just fall into place. That's what's being said. Or, the effort and struggle of the Christian life is about the hard work. You say, wait a minute, I thought these quotes were not about work. This one says, the effort and struggle of the Christian life is about the hard work. Here's the hard work of remembering that we are justified. So the hard work is not expending effort. It's remembering the work that Christ did. Remembering that we are justified and accepted by what Christ has done. Sanctification is not about our behavior. Think about that. It's not about our behavior, but about clinging to God's mercy. And friends, those generalizations are simply not true. They are not true biblically. Now, they can sound true. To eliminate myself and for me to just rest... And for God to simply then just work and I don't exert any effort, that sounds good because it then gives, it appears, more glory to God. But in fact, it's contrary to much that Scripture teaches us. Now let me show you a bit of that, all right? That God, in fact, uses, God uses our efforts in order to move us along in sanctification, in becoming like Jesus. Colossians 1. Turn in your Bibles to Colossians 1. And verse 28. 
we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now stop there. That verse, by the way, is the theme verse for Community Bible Church. That verse. And as you look at that, that really does encapsulate wonderful ministry, doesn't it? We proclaim Christ. We proclaim him. Teaching and admonishing everyone with all wisdom for this purpose, so that we may present everyone perfect, that is, mature in Christ. So we preach and we teach Christ and the fullness of Christ and all that he has told us to observe, Allah the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. So we proclaim him, teaching and admonishing him and all that he has commanded so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Bring everyone along in the sanctification process. Now notice verse 29 though. To this end, that's my objective, says the one who wrote this, Paul. To this end, I labor. Y'all see that? Now Paul, quit laboring. Quit laboring and start remembering. Quit laboring and start resting. But if you look just a cursory reading of the ministry of the great apostle, how much do you find him physically resting? This guy's going full and all out, isn't he? To this end I labor, and then notice the next word, struggling. And the word that's translated struggling is a Greek word. See if you can get the English word that we get from it. It's agonizo. So to this end I work, I exert energy, I labor, agonizing. But notice, I'm agonizing with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. That is the biblical dynamic. Yes, I labor. Yes, I seek to obey. Yes, Lord, I want to please you. Yes, Lord, I exert energy. Yes, I even agonize in eradicating sin in my life. But I understand and, yes, must remember and remind myself regularly that it is his energy working in me. So that all that is accomplished, he gets the glory. Now turn just a couple of pages back to Philippians. Philippians 2. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, Philippians 2.12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work. Now, again, let me, (laughs) dear friends, as you have always obeyed, notice that that ugly word. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. You will desire to obey me. And here's Paul now writing to these Christians in Philippi. And he's saying, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, 
continue to work. And it says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now the words are important in Scripture. Obviously, they're God's words. And if this verse said continue to work for your salvation with fear and trembling, well, we would have a big issue here, wouldn't we? But notice it does not say that. It says continue to work out your salvation. That is, continue to work so that you outwardly display the reality of what you are inwardly and in your standing before God. I have been declared righteous by the holy judge God based upon the perfect life and death of the Lord Jesus. But now I'm being called to live out what I've been declared to be with fear and trembling. Here's why. Verse 13. It is God who works in you. Again, just like Colossians 1, 28 and 29, right? To this end I labor, struggling, agonizing, but note it's with all his energy. Now here it is, yes, you obey and you work. But remember verse 13, it is God who works in you. And then notice the next phrase. He works in you to do something. To will and to act according to his good pleasure. What that verse is saying is this. Those of us who have come to God through Jesus, we've been justified, we've been declared righteous before the holy judge, and now we are in the process of becoming like Christ. We are in the process of becoming like, in reality, what we have been declared to be by God's grace on the basis of the person and work of Jesus. And as we then work that out so that we become what we've been declared to be gradually in the sanctification process, verse 13 says, it's God who works in you. Most of you know that the Bible teaches that those who come to Christ are given the gift of God the Holy Spirit. So we have God the Holy Spirit in relationship with us every moment of every day. And God the Holy Spirit works in you. And he works in you to do something. For you to will, that is, for you to be willing. And then, having been made willing, for you to act according to his good purpose. Now, verse 13 is an explanation of verse 12. How do I know that? The first ver- word in verse 13 is the word for. The reason that you should obey, the reason that you should continue to work outwardly the reality of what you are inwardly and have been declared to be, the reason you should do that, verse 13, is for because. God is at work in you. And God is prompting you to be willing and then to act upon that willingness in obedience, to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Now, how is that an incentive? How is verse 13 an incentive for verse 12? Here's how. The Bible is continually reminding us, look, God doesn't say, I saved you, now let's see how well you do. Now you're on your own. Far from it. But what God says is, now I have done this, stay with me, monergistic work on you. 
Mono means one. And monergistic is one energy, one working. God did a unilateral working on your heart when the Spirit of God breathed life into your dead spirit. And he made you alive. He did that monergistic work. But now in sanctification, you're doing a synergistic work. That is, together now, God is working through us, and we are responding to God's working in us to work outwardly in our obedience, what God has declared us to be and what he has designed for us to become. So the reason you do this, it's an incentive because you're not left on your own. It is God working in you. And God is working for your sanctification. And as God works in you, by His Spirit, prompting you to be willing, and then on the basis of that willingness to actually act, we obey. That should be an incentive for us because it ain't just me doing my thing and hoping it's acceptable to God. Uh Uh-uh. God is accomplishing His work in and through us. But that involves our active obedience, our active response to the overtures of our God, God the Holy Spirit. Now please look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. This work that God is doing in us, that we are then to respond to by actively working and obeying. That's all part of the sanctification process. This work can become discouraging because if we're honest, sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. But God's, God's not only desire, but now you hear this, dear friend. It's not just God's desire. It's God's determination that you will progress in Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, you will progress in Jesus. Thanks be to God. And you need to remember that. In the hard work and in the tough slog of being involved in a fallen world and struggling with my own characteristic sins and seeing this thing rear its ugly head yet again to finally throw up your hands and say, I can't do it. You're right. But you're not left alone. Remember, God is at work, and God is working through you. And God doesn't just desire that this happen. God's not just on the sidelines cheering for you. Come on, I'm pulling for you. I hope this happens. God is actively involved and has determined that this will happen, that those who belong to Jesus will progress in Jesus. I've had you turn to Romans 8, and here's why. Romans 8, 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, there is just so much that you could say about Romans 8, yikes. The book of Romans, and it's 16 chapters. But friends, that, that one statement right there is absolutely loaded. In all things, the God of the universe works. And the God of the universe is moving heaven and earth 
for you to achieve the purpose he has for you. Wow. The God of heaven is moving heaven and earth for his children to have his purpose achieved in them. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Here's why we know that. Verse 29, for because those God foreknew he predestined. Now notice what he predestined. You're going to be conformed to the likeness of his son. And he's moving heaven and earth for that purpose to be accomplished in you. The reason we know this is, verse 29, for because he predestined us for that very thing, to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now what that means is, that word firstborn, you could, you could, you could substitute that with an accurate synonym, the preeminent one. When it says he might be the firstborn, it's that he might be the ultimate one, the preeminent one among many brothers. That is, he's the standard to which everyone else is to conform. And the reason it says to many brothers is because this one to whom we are to conform became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And Hebrews 2 says, he is not ashamed to call them, those he's brought into his family, brothers. And God's purpose is that Jesus Christ be glorified by all creation. He's called a people out of the world and for his very own, and he is guaranteed that those people will become like Jesus so that Jesus will be the preeminent one among all of those in his family. And then verse 30 says, verse 29 said he predestined to be conformed, and now it goes on. He predestined, and those he predestined, he also called. Now, we're going to go through this chain in verse 30, but it's important for you to get this. See the word those in verse 30, and then the word also in the next phrase. So, and those he predestined, he also called. So the same people he called... The same people he predestined are the people he called. And do you see any exceptions to this? I'm asking. Those he predestined, all of those he predestined, he also called. All right, so what is that? Predestined, predestination, yikes. You all had a bagel, you all had coffee, you're all awake. I mean, that's a big term. That's a big concept. But it means pre, before. Before the creation of the world, God determined the destiny of some. That's predestination. And it says those he predestined, those people he also did some other stuff too. He called. Now, what's the called piece? At a point in time, predestination is before time, but then at a point in time, 
You heard the call of the gospel. And God called you out of the world and to himself. So you're moving now progressively from eternity past, predestination, now into past time when he called you. Verse 30, those he predestined, he also called. And then, notice verse 30, and those he called, he also justified. So at a point in time past, I heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit moved upon my mind and heart, he's calling me out of the world and to himself, and I express faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a result, I am justified, declared right before God. But notice the chain doesn't stop there. That's still in time past. Eternity past, those he predestined. Time past, those he called and justified. But then it says, and those he justified, notice the end of verse 30, he also glorified. Well, when did that happen? And the answer is it ain't happened yet. The reason I know it ain't happened yet is because when you're glorified, you get a glorified body. And I'm looking at all of you. And there's not a single glorified body out there. And there's not one glorified body up here. None of us have yet been glorified. But God has guaranteed that we will be. He's predestined that we will be conformed to the image of his dear son. And so he has predestined that that would happen and then in time has executed that plan by calling and justifying and then saying he glorified. And here's the thing. All of these things are stated in past tense. Predestined. Obviously, that's past tense. That's eternity past. And then called. That was some time in your past when you came to Christ. And justified. That happened at the time you responded to that call. That's in time past. But glorified hasn't happened yet, but yet it says he also glorified. You know why? Because God has guaranteed that it will happen. You are just as good as glorified because it's going to happen. God has determined that his people will become like his son. So God is actively involved in this sanctification process. And he doesn't save you and then say, okay, let's see how you do. Now, I want to leave you. Okay, I just want to leave you. (laughs) I was going to leave you with some more stuff. But I can't leave you with some more stuff because the nursery people are violent. And they have children back there. And they are holding children and they are sweating. And we have, little, we, have, we have portable room air conditioners in the nursery and toddler rooms. We actually have seven portable room air conditioners in this building. Five of the seven were on all night. Two were not. We thought they were. When I came in quite early this morning, I go into all those rooms to check. I go into the nursery and toddler rooms, and the two portable units are not on. So this is, these are the two rooms that if there are any rooms in this building that need to be air-conditioned. And there are people who serve there that I am af- deathly afraid of. It's in the nursery and toddler ministry. 
So we got them started, but they only do so well. So while we've been in this air-conditioned room, they've been sweating back there. If you have nursery or toddler-age kids, go get them after we pray. Father, thank you for this time for us to consider the work that you are doing in your people to make us like Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the immense comfort that it is to know that you have predetermined that we will become like Jesus. And you are at work in all things to make sure that that purpose is accomplished in your children. And the all things includes the good and the bad and the ugly. And even in our struggle with sin, you are actively involved conforming us to Jesus, rebuking us and correcting us and, and teaching us to be trained in righteousness. Oh, our Lord, we thank you that you have this purpose, this gracious purpose for us. And we thank you that you have given us your absolute promise that that purpose will be accomplished come what may. So may we take great comfort in that and great security in that. And may it then motivate us. As your word tells us, it should motivate us. Because it is God who is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. You've designed for that promise to be a motivator for us. May it be that, Lord, this week. Knowing that whatever we face, knowing that however we fail, that because we are in the Lord Jesus, you have determined that we will prevail. We will become like your son. Help us, Lord, this week to obey. Help us to desire that and to deliver that in our obedience. But help us to always remember that it is you who is at work in us and always to remember to give you the glory for all you accomplish in and through us. We ask you, Lord, grant us safety this week. Bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.